Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other, a program where we are crossing the divide and faithful about our politics. Faithful politics kind of has a ring to it. That'll <laughs> preach. <Yeah. laughs> that'll, that'll stick, right? Yeah, we don't mind having some fun either. And by the way, if you like the show, tell a friend. Uh, you may know listeners recommending our program to their friends and family who might like it is the number one way word gets out about what we're doing here. I am your host and glad to be with Jessica, the reporter Stone. Jess, how are you doing? Any updates from our friends in Afghanistan? Uh, safe, but still sitting, waiting for a flight uh, out. All right. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> oh, jeez. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> oh, man, it's already starting. Wow, the shot across the bow. I thought this was was a peaceful protest. I guess that was a peaceful protest. It was. It was. There's nothing violent about It wasn't about thanks, that. Obama, Josh. That's thanks, Biden. Or thanks, Trump. Same diff. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Trump. Yes. Well, we, we for folks who are praying folks or just folks who like to send good thoughts, please continue to do that for our friends in Afghanistan. Yes. And today we're doing something a little different. We are joined by the hosts of our fierce competitors. You may have heard already a little bit here. <laughs> not, not fierce competitors. I sort of kid about that. But honestly, I am encouraged by a growing ecosystem of folks who are producing quality content at this intersection of faith and politics. And not so coincidentally, Will Wright and Josh Bertram have a podcast called Faithful Politics, where they talk to experts, scholars, theologians, politicians, journalists, and everyday people. They have a really just impressive lineup of guests. Uh, and, and the goal is to understand how political decisions affect people of faith and people of uh, atheists and agnostics. Uh, and they are absolutely, quote unquote, proving that it is much more rewarding to discuss topics in an effort to understand each other rather than just score points. Most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time. Uh, yeah. Um, like I said, not, not afraid to have a little bit of fun. So a little bit of background on Will and Josh. Will is Will Wright is a lifelong student of politics who enlisted in the Army after 9-11 and traveled the world as a consultant after his time in the service. He is a former atheist, disabled veteran, and African-Asian-American whose political views tend to be more liberal progressive. Josh Bertram, who has traditionally stayed out of the political environment, is a full-time pastor at Short Pump Community Church outside of Richmond, Virginia, and is a conservative Republican who has a heart and passion for theology. Will and Josh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Corey. How are you guys doing? Doing all right. You know, I would say that, uh, Will, you uh, have so many different, uh, such an intersection of all those different identities. It's going to be great to hear you talk about every single one of those <laughs> every single bit of it every every single one well uh thank you Corey. soldier father son yeah <laughs> thank you Corey. thank you uh jessica big fans of yours um you know yes. thank you for the warm warm welcome you know and and uh yeah and thanks for um you know just kind of plugging our show it's kind of weird my my wife actually 
perfectly sums up like what it is that I'm doing because like I've got a full-time job and, and, and she, she says, I think you're just doing a podcast so you can like talk to people that you really wanted to talk to. Like, you don't really, you don't really like care if you're famous or not. And I was like, you're right. Like I, I just wanted to talk to these people but I didn't have a good platform to do it on. <laughs> so I created a podcast so that way I can say, Hey, come on my podcast, you know, and we're really popular if we're not, you know, but uh, <laughs> at least it's like, it's a way. And so as long as I just keep doing the things that I enjoy doing, you know, the growth would just kind of come out of it. And uh, yeah. So thanks for having us on. I mean, unlike Will, I'm in it for the fame and for the money. <laughs> and also yesterday we've announced on my, on our podcast that I'm going to be in the 2025 gubernatorial uh, race for Virginia. No, I don't know if I am or not, but Will <laughs> on this podcast. That's an off year, Josh. Oh, it's, no, no, for Virginia. For Jess, Virginia. 25. It's yeah, actually 2025. 2025. If you can believe you it. Yeah. And then uh, Will's yeah. going to be my, uh, my uh, campaign manager. Manager. There yeah. you go. And, and, and you're going to be funded by the Republican Accountability Project. Yes. <laughs> Although we didn't get a hard yes on that, but we did press on that yesterday. <laughs> and Corey, you're funding us too. You didn't know it yet, but I was just letting you know. <laughs> We're announcing it right here, right now. Getting a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah, they had, uh, Jess, they had Olivia Troy on this week. And and by the way, they had Olivier Knox. Uh, so I was worried about you there for a second, Josh. I wasn't sure if you were hunting Pikachus or Area 51 or, there, I don't know if you heard, there was this thing that uh, Will said, he's still out doing this and that. Yeah. Just so you know, Josh, because I don't know if, Josh is kind of like my wife in a lot of ways. Like, you, they don't really <laughs> listen. They don't, like, Wait, like, you, like, you don't listen to the episode unless it's somebody that you really, you know, are interested in. I, I give my wife a hard time about this all the time. I'm like, you know, you realize your husband's the one that's recording this, right? Yeah, but, you know, like, like w- once you have a guest on, I'm really interested, then I'll listen. And I'm just like. Tough crowd. <laughs> hey, I'm still yeah. catching up. Yeah, my <laughs> wife hardly ever listens. She is so thoroughly unimpressed with me. <laughs> she listened to the, the the mooch one. That that was about it. Oh, she actually, our niece came on to talk about anti-Semitism. So I think she listened to that one. Oh, but nice. uh, yeah, she I, we friended get... me on Instagram. I have like nice. five followers now instead of three. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, this is already getting off the rails. So let me uh, back up a little bit. I uh, wanted to get a little bit of background in early life. So we have a understanding of where you fellows come from. Will, I read a story that you decided not to run for elected office because of something that happened to you in the third grade. You know what I'm referring to? Yeah. Okay, so can yeah. you tell us about that incident? Yeah. So, and so I grew up, I've always, I live in Virginia now, but I've always been a West Coast kid, grew up in um, um, Los Angeles, California, um, moved to the high desert, but you know, so most of my primary education was in, was in California. And when I was in the third grade, I had this school teacher, um, we were talking about, I don't know, like what we wanted to be when we grow up. And when it came to be my turn, I told the teacher that I wanted to be president. And my teacher at that time said, you know, well, you'll never be able to be president because you're black. And, and I, and I remember thinking to myself, like, like I was in third grade. So like, for me, I didn't really have a framework to kind of place like that level of racism as I understand it today. Um, so I just, I just naturally assume, Oh, well, she's got a point. I am black. So maybe I can't be president, you know, like in, in that, in wow. that, that mentality just stuck with me my entire life mm. until I don't know. I mean, like, cause, cause the school I was in was predominantly black. 
so I just, I mean, I looked at her as an adult and just figured, well, you know, she, she clearly knows more than I do, you know, <laughs> like she could have, she could have told me anything. You can't be president because you've got two eyes, you know, and I'd be like, all right, I guess, you know, <laughs> but, um, um, so yeah, so that, that abruptly ended my political career, uh, from an early age and yeah, it's probably why I have a podcast instead of, you know, a seat in Congress or something. <laughs> well, there's still time. There's still time. But so later in life, after 9-11, you decided to join the military. What was it for you personally that prompted that decision? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, there's a couple different versions of, of the story. The, the, the one I'll, I'll tell you will, will, will focus around patriotism, because as, as I mentioned on, on some other podcasts was like I was a hippie like grew up West coast hippie. I was in college. I was studying music. I wanted to be like a music journalist <laughs> where, where like I watched this movie called almost famous, which is like amazing movie. And I think it changed my life. Like I was a psychology major in college and I changed it to music, which I would, would not recommend any college person do is like change their major completely. So long story short, um, became a big hippie, like big Afro, like literally like, big, big Afro, you know, frequent goer of Coachella and so on and so forth. And, uh, after nine 11, um, happened, I, I laughed. I laughed actually when the, when the planes hit the towers, because I thought it was a joke. I listened to this radio station that they often play pranks on their listeners. So I, I remember just laughing, like in my car, like, huh, that's kind of funny. And then back of my head just thought, but it sounds kind of real. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got into work, um, that I saw a bunch of people huddled around a radio and like they were listening to the same thing I was listening to. And it, and it just, it clicked all of a sudden. It's like, Oh, this is not fake. This is actually a real thing. And that, that really like, that really did something. It, it, it switched a gear for me that I didn't realize I had where a month or two later I was um, at the recruiting station and a month after that at the MEP station, the military entrance uh, processing center or station. And I joined the infantry. Mind you, I could have done, I could have been a linguist. I could have done a whole bunch of other things that my ASVAB score would have allowed me to do. But instead I, I wanted to actually have boots on the ground and actually fight. So um, I enlisted, went to Fort Benning. And then in 2003, I, I deployed to Iraq of all places, you know, but that's a whole other story why we went to Iraq. But I, it, it really just sort of like changed the trajectory of my entire life. You know, like, and I, 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 I wouldn't take it back for anything, you know, even though I'm a disabled vet now and, you know, I still have issues with just living my life like in a normal way, but you know, I, I felt like it was the, the right thing to do. And I've got friends to this day that still doubt I was actually in the military because if you imagine a big hippie like myself, all of a sudden joining the, the military, like I was the guy that was like against the military, you know, like, ah, you know, no war, you know, and protests and stuff. And here I am like part of the machine that I used to rage against. Yeah. Hey, oh. What was it that, I mean, dig a little deeper if you can, uh, into what, what was the switch that flipped? I mean, you, you, you talk about going from being a hippie to somebody that was part of the machine. What did you have to reconcile in your own mind to be able to get there? For me personally, it was, it was, uh, a sense of not, caring if I lived or died anymore. <laughs> it, it, it sounds really radical, but like, because we were attacked. I mean, was there a sense of patriotism mixed in there or like um, fight or flight? It was a confluence of a, a lot of different things. It was 
like, I need to do something. Like I'm, I've just been mooching off the system for so long. I need to do something, but in order for me to do something, I have to stop thinking about myself and putting myself, you know, at kind of the center of attention. And, and when I say like, I had to come, come to grips with the fact of whether or not, you know, my life was important or not. It, 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 I don't want it to make it, make it sound like I had like, you know, like thoughts of suicidal ideation or anything like that, but it was. No, yeah. But you're, you have to be able to face death if you're going to be an infantryman. Exactly. And, and, and it was, a, it, that was probably the biggest arc that I had to overcome because I mean, I was just like, you know, a young 20 something college kid that decided to join the infantry right after we're, America was attacked. So like there, there was, there was a reckoning that I had to come to in order to kind of make that big jump. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was a crazy time, but you know, like I said, I do it all over again. Yeah. And then, um, just tell us, you know, about your service, where did you serve? You, you mentioned Iraq, uh, missions you were a part of, what types of duties did you have? Yeah. So, um, being in the infantry, I was in a line squad, basically it's, um, um, we were part of the first striker brigade. Um, we were the, the first very first striker brigade, um, the Donald Rumsfeld injected a whole bunch of money into the military to kind of create what they call like a medium infantry unit. Basically it's a, a hybrid of uh, light infantry. Think of like, you know, people walking through the fields in Vietnam to like heavy uh, infantry, like tanks, Abrams, stuff like that. So the strikers were supposed to be like a, a middle medium infantry type of unit, quick deployment. I mean, these things would drive like 70 miles an hour on the highway and we would basically go in into an area really quick, um, dismount, go knock down some doors, find the bad guys, jump back in, and then drive 70 miles an hour out of the, out of the AO. So area of operation. Yeah. Area of operation. Yeah. And, um, so in Iraq, we, we were everywhere. I mean, like we first started in Balad and then we just moved. I mean, we were part of the QRF, uh, force or quick reaction force. Forgive me if I use a lot of acronyms. So please feel free to like, correct me if I'm sometimes I can translate. Sometimes it's beyond me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like, uh, you know, part, part of being part of the quick reaction force meant that, you know, we could be in Mosul like one moment, then we get a call to go to Najaf the next moment. And then we get another call to go to Samara, like the, the next moment. And basically we were just all over. Like, so, uh, when we got the call to, you know, be security for, Saddam Hussein, like we were on that mission. We were on the mission when, when, you know, he was pulled out of the hole and I mean, it was super anticlimactic, but you know, as, as, as I mentioned on one of our other episodes where I recorded with it, with an old army buddy who was a green brain, we were sort of reminiscing about how, you know, when, when they pulled Saddam Hussein out of the hole, like we we're all looking at our watches, like, okay, yeah, we're going home any day now. Right. <laughs> but like we were there for a heck of a lot longer. Um, but you know, it, 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 it was a, it was a fun experience. I only went to Iraq. Um, I only needed to go to Iraq. Um, I only did four years. So I'm not going to like try to pretend like I was like a lifelong, whatever. I think the, I think my hippiness started to creep back in and I was like, okay, been there, done that. Got the, you know, wires on my back right now, <laughs> like I'm ready to go home. So, so that's, that's all I needed. But, uh, but it was, it was a, yeah, it was a good experience. Yeah. Well, um, Josh, uh, you, I, I wanted to ask you about your formative years as well. You grew up as a, as a PK, isn't that right? Pastor's kid. That's another acronym. Yep. 
<laughs> so for the benefit of our listeners who aren't part of a church, uh, can you describe some of the unique challenges and pressures of being a pastor's kid? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, the first thing is that you kind of live under a microscope or in a fishbowl, whatever you want to say. You know, your dad is, uh, he has a certain reputation that he needs to keep. And I wasn't exactly the best at uh, keeping my dad's reputation, um, at least in a good way. And neither were my three brothers. And uh, I think my, my sister is the oldest and oldest of five uh, kids. And she did a pretty good job, I think. But uh, <clears throat> the rest of us went back and forth. So we had to you know, learn how to, you know, you couldn't say, you know, dad, you couldn't talk about like dad got mad or if something happened. It's just like, you're just not talking about that stuff because, uh, you know, dad's got a reputation and that, and he wasn't, that no one was trying to put that on us. It was just kind of assumed. And it was just kind of there like a water to fish. You know, we just kind of knew had that sense that, yeah, this is, we, we need to, we need to make sure that we're, you know, keeping the name out of the mud kind of thing. Yeah. And you, you were, you were around it all the time, uh, Sunday, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, you know, Sunday like, night. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So at what point, so you had a turnaround at some, at a certain point, you, you decided to go into the ministry. What, at what point did you make that decision? Well, you know, as the typical story goes, especially for pastor's kids, I had a rebellious streak in me. And uh, by the way, pastor's kids are like the worst, man. I'm, I'm praying that my son, you know, <clears throat> I'm praying blessing over him. My daughter, Noelle's a sweetheart. And my, my daughter, Autumn, she's kind of crazy. So I'm hoping that Autumn <laughs> and Malachi are able to keep it together, you know. Um, and I know I'm just I'm saying that sort of tongue in cheek. Uh, but I, I had this uh, time where I started to... Um, really well <laughs> i started to really uh started to live a life that was going down a path that wasn't going to work long term it was a path of you know the typical partying drinking things like that um in my high school years and um, i had a pretty radical experience pretty radical spiritual experience the first thing is i there was a girl that i wanted to impress and she was like a really good person yes and she was very good and I knew that she wasn't going to date a pothead like me. So I was like figuring out either how am I going to, you know, hide this or what am I going to do? You know, and I just, I, you know, I was in a place I was head over heels, you know, struck, smitten. So I was like, okay. Um, but so that kind of got me moving. But then I had an experience one night at a youth group where they kind of just uh, made an invitation for people to kind of have some time and talk to God. And I know people are in different uh, levels of understanding and belief that listen to this, and it's totally cool. Uh, but for me, um, I really felt like I heard God speak um, and uh, really deep in, in my soul to the depth of my soul. It was just like, you need to move out of this lifestyle. You're going down a bad path. Uh, it's not going to lead you where you want to go. It's not going to lead you where you think you're supposed to go. And I took it seriously. And really, like, um, it was it was really miraculous in some ways because Many, many of the things that I had struggled with um, for years kind of went away overnight. Now, they crept back in after uh, after several years and after some heartbreak and after life kind of hit me, as life does. But there was really like a time of, um, of a lot of peace, a lot of growth, and just a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, healing, really. 
And then um, I didn't think I was going to be in ministry. I didn't want to be in ministry. Um, I really had no interest. And then I was uh, on a mission trip. We were helping out some churches and some people in Mexico City. And uh, with the youth group that I was in, the group in the church for teenagers. And when that happened, um, I just had another really profound spiritual experience where, again, I felt like I heard God say, um, yeah, you need to... uh, you're going to, I'm calling you into doing what I want you to do. And I think everyone needs that personally, but for me, it's like, I'm calling you into ministry, the very thing you didn't want to do. And uh, I kind of uh, went from there and went to Bible college, went to seminary, had several other of those really profound moments that led us all the way to here, including a moment that uh, where I felt like God called me to uh, start a church. And that was 10 years before I ever I ever even moved into that. Mm. So when I was 22 years old, so yeah, it was quite quite a long time ago. And then, uh, but then after 10 years, it all came back and through a whole process of things I don't have time to go into, wound up here in uh, Virginia and Richmond and starting a church. There you go. And then Will came in and screwed everything up with all his liberal <laughs> views. I was like, come on, man. And then no, it's been did uh, you guys meet in person for before you started the podcast, or did did you guys? I mean, like, how did you guys meet? We met at um, a friend's it was party. A dating, oh, oh you're, you're gonna you're, you're gonna tell that story. That's We're not much gonna better. Talk yeah. about Tinder. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> swipe left. If you're a lefty, swipe right if you're a righty. <laughs> no, we had a friend, a mutual friend, a party of a mutual friend, uh, and um we just kind of started talking about theology. Then he texted me one day. He's like, you want to do a podcast? It was like in the middle of pandemic. I was like, you know, thinking like, what am I going to do, man? This is crazy. And there's so much craziness. Um, And then he texted me. I'm like, yeah, I want to do a podcast. Mind you, like we didn't really know each other that well when we started the podcast. I just knew that he was a Trump voting Republican and. (laughs) That was enough for you. He had you at he had you at Trump voting Republican. <laughs> find somebody more opposite than you. <laughs> uh, Josh had me in MAGA. <laughs> I was curious, actually. Will you describe yourself as a former atheist? So, what has your spiritual or theological trajectory been like? Where are you at now? And how did that how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, it, it, my my spiritual theology is basically wherever Josh tells me it is, or because he's my pastor. So. Um, yeah, I, I I grew up atheist. I didn't really believe in God. I was kind of forced to, you know, attend these church services that I didn't really believe in. And then in college, I was just like, you know, I was the guy that would go find these, you know, people trying to preach the gospel and make them feel bad. And, you know, my, my sort of coming of age story, my coming to Christ story was is somewhat similar in the sense of Josh is where, you know, my, my wife is a PK and and um she's like way she's like way out of my league you know and and uh, and i knew that if i wanted to get to know her better i had to you know i had to get get bibled up and i i gave my life to christ at the altar uh when we got married so um that's sort of the reader's digest version wow wow so there was a uh that that was a life-changing day in, in more ways than than one so interesting you know I asked a similar question of Bill Goble and Odell Cleveland. They do Bill and Odell are finding common ground. Uh, but one of you, let's say, you know, leans more Republican and one of you leans uh, toward policy positions that 
uh, of the current Democratic Party, but both of you are Christians. Have you discussed yet how you can both be reading your Bible, both be taking it as God's word, and yet you each come to different political conclusions despite having the same frame of reference for, for so much of your decision-making and worldview? I don't know if we've explicitly discussed that. I mean, we, I mean, we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. You know, we haven't sat down and said, hey, let's answer this question, you know, as you just framed it. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, we have to, we deal with issues of interpretation all the time. And we've had a lot of the guests we've had on the podcast, especially professors that are theologians, have helped us, you know, um, enlighten both of us in terms of thinking through our own presuppositions when we come to how we interpret the Bible and we just see it as raw data, you know, from which we, um, you know, formulate our, our, our sense of beliefs and our sense of belonging in, uh, in, in the kingdom of God and, and what he's calling us to do. And um, probably the, the, in my sense, the biggest difference in terms of policy um, between Will and myself is not really like an interpretation of the Bible or we think this one said like we've never really come to a place and felt like oh yeah well this one this verse says this I'm like no it says this I mean that doesn't really happen it's all an application and it's all in the sense of how is that lived out now um, and those are where the divides take it's not in the sense of like is this um, God's word is this some kind of authority is this something we should take seriously it, it at least i don't want to speak for will but at least in my um in my experience it's never been that but it's more like hey uh almost like different ways of living out what we feel like is the same core message and even and, and realizing that our political beliefs though deeply impacted by our spiritual beliefs and our spiritual life are not synonymous with our spiritual life if that makes sense, like we don't have to, we can have the same spiritual beliefs and yet come to different political beliefs. So there's something in the political ideologies that's that that's separated from simply faith. I think that is so important. I almost feel like we need to have you say that again, like, <laughs> because I don't know, a lot of times we find ourselves talking about how uh, people conflate those inherently just because of sin, right? And um, I grew up in a deep, deeply Southern church the first seven years of my life. And uh, man, they did not make a distinction between antebellum culture and uh, the word of God. <laughs> it was yes. it was scary stuff. So uh, yeah, um, I'm grateful that the Lord captured my heart apart from that thinking so that I, I kind of had some discernment or had people around me that were discerning. But yeah, I think that happens in a lot of places. So it's more in the application. I was just thinking about some of the things we have, we haven't thoroughly explored all our disagreements, Corey, <laughs> but um, are there like, like before elections, have you guys had some good debates between you, each other on, um, on, on the application of some of your beliefs when it comes to I mean, we've got a governor's race in Virginia. I live in Virginia too, right, this year. So um, even though I couldn't do the math on the next cycle, I, I know we have an election this cycle. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, like, are you are you guys talking about some of the political races in your community and, and how your faith affects that? Yeah, so with with elections and, and probably more specifically like the 2020 elections, I, I wouldn't say that our disagreements 
were centered around, you know, why Trump is a better candidate than Biden and vice versa, as much as it is how we go about reconciling our faith in the context of the decision we're making for whatever candidate that we're going to support. Like, you know, with if you're a Trump voter, Trump supporter, you're obviously not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because you've got a bunch of Supreme Court judges and all kinds of other stuff, like as a result of Trump, you know, like if not Trump, you know, replace him with Ted Cruz or Rubio, whoever, like, you know, they're still going to do Republican-esque type things. The person that sits in the White House is sort of like a moot point. Um, so for me, you know, kind of being kind of on the Biden bandwagon, although he wasn't necessarily my 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 first choice, he's implementing a lot of liberal progressive type of stuff um, that that benefit me personally and benefit sort of my worldview. And and I can kind of separate the man from from the policy, just like I think that Josh kind of had to do with with Trump and and his policies. So, so, so we, we haven't really gotten down to like the meat and potatoes, um, about some issues that I know that him and I definitely disagree on, you know, whether it's, you know, revolving around, um, LGBTQ issues or, or other, like the more popular, like maybe like CRT type stuff. Um, here's, here's one. How about this? This just happened in, in Richmond, right? The, the Robert E. Lee statue removal. Yeah. I don't know that that's a religious, you know, that that's shaped by your religious persuasion, but how do you, how do you guys talk about that? Or, or can you talk about it now? What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Josh, how do you feel about sure. it? <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't really, honestly, um, I looked at the news. I was like, oh yeah, they removed the statue. Um, I, I, you're I not from Virginia though, are you? I'm from Virginia. I'm really? Not- I'm from Nova. Oh uh, yeah, you don't really count. They wouldn't really yeah, count you up I here. I don't really count. And and the people in Nova don't really they say, yeah, I'm from Virginia, but it's Northern Virginia. Yeah, Northern Virginia is essentially <laughs> equivalent to DC in Southern Virginia's yes. mind. So we would say that every time. Now it's not, it's not like Southern Virginia, it's Northern Virginia. We'd yeah. always make a point. Northern Virginia. <laughs> yeah, you're you're the classy ones. <laughs> well, but I mean, so for me, I, I don't have a strong, I don't have a strong emotional reaction to tearing down the statues. I do have a, a stronger reaction to the idea of, and not, and this is going to be really a generalized statement, but the idea of rewriting history or, or something along those lines that I have a stronger reaction to and yet even there like instead of rewriting maybe it's bringing in other voices and i'm totally i'm totally cool with that so it doesn't affect me very much but i do understand why it affects other people and i come from i come from a long line of racists now i'm not going to say this about like my parents were not they're very good people and uh and no one really I think chose to be in my family, but we had like people in the Confederate army that were in the Bertram family. Mm. Um, Did they know they were racist? Did they even use that term? (laughs) No, they would not call them. No, they would have said they're not. And I just remember having certain things that happened and even certain things my grandfather would say. So my, my heritage is, is in Alabama on my father's side. And so, yeah, <laughs> heritage, so, but that's where the church was that uh, the aforementioned church. 
And that makes sense. Yeah. So we were all around in Alabama and, you know, moonshiners, you know, people on the, you know, uh, living in the hills of Alabama and then the flatlands and my, my grandparents came together and, and they moved. My grandmother wanted to get out of the South as soon as possible and, and, and wouldn't let uh, her children have Southern accents and wouldn't let and would correct that and made sure they went to all the operas and the museums and in, huh. in, in the culture of D.C. because she didn't want people thinking or knowing that they were from Alabama wow. or that that was their heritage. So it was a very strange mix growing up. So no, I don't think they I, I don't think they would think that they're racist at all. Um, they that might have, you know, and I'm referring to my grandparents. I think that that um, may have changed over time. And my sister married an African-American man and uh and i remember my grandfather having some really hard times with that um and saying some things at the dinner table that shocked me when i was uh when i was like 14 15 years old i'm like i can't believe you just said that to my sister you know like oh my gosh like is grandpa a racist you know i mean i never had any wow. idea and, and it was so different the talk of race was so different growing up that you're just like like the things that you know, by the standards of today, I'm sure all of us are racist. You know, that's my, you know, by the standards I see, at least. It makes me wonder uh, sometimes when I'm talking to my daughter, who's 20 now, I'm cognizant of that, that possibility. Lisa comes from Alabama. Her people are all from Alabama. Um, the poor, <laughs> poor folk of Alabama. And um, I'm sure none of her great grandparents, great, great grandparents thought of themselves as, as, as racist. So it makes me cognizant of where are my blind spots, you know? So when I talk to my daughter about her worldview, conclusions that she's arrived at, and it strikes me as, oh, you can't do that. You can't, you know, like, is that just my own prejudices kicking in my own assumptions that I'm imposing right. on her? Uh, but, you know, I wanted to ask you, Josh, I, during the Republican nomination process in 2016, there were literally 14 of those Republicans I could have easily voted for for president. Uh, mm -hmm. Trump was never someone I was going to vote for president. Uh, I knew him back in the 80s. I'm a Jersey boy. So I knew him back in the 80s. And I just knew what kind of an individual he is. Uh, he's someone who's unmoored by any sense of principle or, or integrity. And I, I was just never I was never going to vote for an individual like that. But I, I have some friends who, you know, sort of begrudgingly voted for him because they had such a strong aversion to Hillary Clinton and, and the other choices they didn't see as, as um, options for them. But then there were certain instances um, just in the last year or so, for example, when he held a Bible aloft upside down in front of in front of the church, St. John's across the street from the White House. Right. Uh, that was something we talked about it. A couple of my friends, they were like, uh, I'm out. I just can't do it. They didn't know if they could vote for Biden yet, but they certainly couldn't vote for Trump again because it was literally taking the Lord's word, the Lord's name in vain uh, for, for his for the purpose of vanity, for the purpose of a photo op. He took the right. Lord's word. Uh, so that was just, you know, on top of all the other stuff that had happened, um, right. it was hard enough to vote for him for the first time. You know, but then, you know, even post-election, I'm obviously January 6th was a big historic event. I'm wondering, Josh, has there come a point where you, you just, you, you can't do it anymore? Or are you still on the, on the Trump train? Choo -choo. 
<laughs> the Trump train. You know, um, Will very selfishly asked me on our first podcast if Jesus would vote for Trump. It's a great and, question. And tongue-in-cheek, tongue tongue I said yes. And then I, and then I, and then I shifted that around. Um, so I voted for him in 2016. And the reason I did it was quite simple. The first one is the Supreme Court justices. To me, that was, I, I had seen in my mind, the only time I started even paying attention to politics was during the Obama era. And I, and, and when I saw the decisions that came out of the Supreme Court during that time, and saw the Obama appointees um, and how they had voted, which wasn't surprising in any way. But when I saw that and I saw this shift and I saw what, like, I, I just, in my mind, I was like, whoa, this really makes a big difference. And I always knew it did. But I was like, man, whoever we have on that court makes a big difference. So for me, it was like, okay, Supreme Court justices, the second thing is just hopefully relying on the track record of Republican presidents normally more, normally making decisions in some kind of congruence with the party platform. And what? when I read the two party <laughs> platforms, when I read them in 2016, when yeah. I read them, I was like, I so much more, my ideals and my values so much more align with a Republican yeah. party platform than they do to Democratic. Not in every instance, but in some of the major things in my, uh, major issues in my heart. In 2020, I actually voted for oh, Joe Jorgensen. Oh. Um, I didn't vote for Trump. And one of the reasons I didn't is because, and, and Will and I had a long talk, uh, many talks about this. And he would say, I just don't think he's good for our country. Yeah. And I, and I started to just see the division. I don't know if, you know, I, I think he gets blamed for everything. I'm not, I, I'm not a fan of him. I couldn't, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a total joke that he even ran for president. I couldn't believe he was a Republican nominee. Yeah. Um, but when I, and I would watch his videos, like, you know, like some, like he didn't have any kind of like written anything about a plan or proposal. And there was, there was no platform this time around. There wasn't even a platform. It was like um, it was like a one minute like thing. I remember in, in New Hampshire, it was like a one minute video. Like I'm gonna remove all the drugs from New Hampshire. He would say the most ridiculous, grandiose things. I'm like, what in the world? And I couldn't believe it. But then when he was the guy, he was the guy. I was like, okay. And I was also shocked that he won. But then when it came to this next cycle, I was like, and and I just saw the kind of things that were happening in our country and the in the division and people. I think. I don't know. I think he did good, some good things during his presidency, sure. But when I saw this thing happen, I was like, ah, I just, I, I don't think he's good for a country. And the way I've heard it described, I've always described it this way. So it's like, it's a, imagine that you have, and I heard this in a, in, in a book or an article that I read, like talking about like the, the tension and the angst that the evangelical community felt with Trump, like this, this un, uneasy alliance. Um, because we know like he's not a good dude, but yet at the same time, he's getting, you know, he's kind of doing the things that we like. So it was like, as if like imagining 
that you have a neighbor and that neighbor is always has all like parties going on. And he has like all these various people, drug dealers coming in and out of his house or like, you know, some, some really shady characters coming in. He's with a, you know, he's with a different person every week, the new flavor of the week. And you're like, man, but then someone tries to get in your house and he comes out and he beats the crap out of that person. And you're like, man, I wouldn't like want my daughter to date him. Like I would forbid her to date him. <laughs> I would do everything. I wouldn't my, I don't want my son to make him a role model. Um, but uh, it's kind of like, I feel like he'll fight for me. Yeah. That, and that was the most effective messaging in a 2020 campaign. A lot of my friends yeah. who are more conservative, especially in areas like Southern California, where there's a lot of uh, folks who de definitely lean more liberal, uh, there is there is not a permission structure to be outwardly um, conservative in a lot of places. You know, when there have been a couple of times uh, since I'm a Christian, I, I was with my entertainment industry friends and something just innocuous. I, I, I was at a poker game one, one Saturday night and said, Hey, folks, I gotta, I gotta take off. You know, it was midnight already. We got to go to church in the morning. And all that's all I said. And the, this uh, gal sitting next to me, uh, that's all she needed to hear. And I, I was kind of trapped there for the next half hour. She was grilling me about uh, <laughs> why do all your people, and that always bothers me. Like, why do all you people or all your people? Um, she, she had me, she had me on the defensive about Trump in particular. And I'm like, first of all, he's not my dude. Second of all, you, you lost me at all you people, you know, yeah. but she, she just became, um, she became, uh, really, uh, really aggressive, uh, at the, just at the me mentioning, Hey, I'm going, I got to go to church tomorrow. So I got to pack it up, you know? So <laughs> I can understand why, Somebody who either is conservative or expresses a conservative point of view, there have been times when that person could feel under attack. Uh, and it's understandable why a certain level of hostility would build up, mutual hostility. I think that was some of the most effective marketing that the Trump campaign was using. It, it resonated with people who felt genuinely under attack or that they were going to get attacked or receive hostility just for having, you know, certain conservative points of view. But, um, Will, I was curious, you struck me as a very independent thinker. Can you envision a 2024 race or a 2028 race where you'd end up supporting the Republican candidate? And if so, what would that race look like? Would it be like AOC against Ben Sass, or like what would be the conditions if that's possible or is that possible? Yeah, I think um, I, I, I could easily support a Republican candidate. I mean, um, you know, the you know, the, 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 the one guy from Ohio, his name escapes me right now. Um, that was sort of the last three between Ted Cruz. Kasich. Yeah. Kasich. Yeah. I would have voted for him in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, because, because a, a lot of, a lot of my decision-making, you know, even though I, I play the liberal on TV, um, you know, I, I am pretty, pretty moderate for the most part. Like, just, just don't tell anybody. I mean, like, <laughs> like I, I like guns, you know, um, but I also don't care like who you marry, you know? I mean, if I can just find just two random issues on each side of the spectrum, you know? So, yeah. so maybe I'm a libertarian. I don't really know. So, so yeah. So, so with regards to, to voting for a Republican candidate, yeah, I wouldn't have any, have any issues that the things that would have to be in place in order for me to do that 
would really, you know, kind of be along the, the Kasich lines. Like you just have to just be a good speaker. You have to have like a certain level of trustworthiness. You have to be competent. I mean, and, 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 and you have to just sort of speak about things that are of interest to me, not a hundred percent of, of things that interest me. Cause like, I'm not going to get everything I want in a candidate. So I just have to make sure that the things that I'm willing to be lenient or sacrifice, you know, aren't necessarily. So, so in other words, if a candidate, you know, say doesn't support gun control, then I have to sort of look a little bit deeper into that um, to kind of figure out how that personally affects me and, and then kind of fill, you know, fill out what I'm comfortable with or whatnot. So yeah, I'm, I'm not a total Republican hater. I mean, you know, I'm friends with Josh. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I think the reason that, so I would encourage you on your podcast to keep asking that question, because I think part of what we're going to see is an attempt by the Republicans that are smart to widen the tent and to widen their appeal, which they never did after the 2012 autopsy. I mean, they, they, they took the great ideas about broadening the tent and some of it was watering down the platform, but some of it was really outreach to additional groups of voters that hadn't really voted Republican before, you know, a la the, the border counties in El Paso that were largely Hispanic and African-American and went whole, wholeheartedly for Trump. Not that, mm-hmm. not that that's the measure of being a Republican, although some would argue it is, but rather that that there's a case to be made to different groups of voters that don't typically vote Republican. So I think it's a really interesting question, like what what would it take for people to move in that direction, particularly people who go to church, um, because their values are in, in some cases, especially on life, sometimes on marriage, um, on transgender issues, on some educational issues are potentially more aligned with where the Republican Party has said that it is. We'll see if it moves. It may well move to the left. But I, I think it's a really interesting question for people of faith to see whether they're going to move in a, in a more socially conservative direction or not, which might put them in the Republican tent. As each of you are talking, I'm realizing where like the bullseye for me would be. But it's a it's a very narrow pool of potential candidates. If there are candidates, we interviewed a fellow named Craig Snyder, who is a Republican uh, running for the Republican nomination for Senate in Pennsylvania. We started our interview with a question, did Donald Trump lose the 2020 election fair and square? And is Biden, you know, the, the duly and fairly elected president of the United States? And Craig went on to say, it's it really tragic that you even have to ask me that question. You know, it's really tragic that none of his Republican colleagues will say what we all know to be true, that they're more committed to the battle uh, than they are to truth. They're more committed to owning the libs or scoring points, as you would put it, than to basic civics, uh, to basic common decency, you know, winning the supposed battle against the supposed enemy, the libs, you know, as broadly defined as anybody who accepts the fact that the election was fairly executed uh, and that all of those uh, 60 out of those 61 uh, lawsuits were, were, you know, it was a good process to go through. Anyway, that's my short bucket, uh, you know, small bucket of, of candidates that I would vote for if it's a Republican, because my values tend to line up more with, you know, what, what had been historically Republican values. Um, but it's, it's a very short pool of people, sadly, that will that that aren't getting F's on the GOP democracy report card, you know, Olivia Troy's organization that aren't. Uh, election deniers that that 
didn't vote to overturn a free and fair election. So you give me a Republican, I'm voting for that guy all the time now, or the gal. Um, what are they for, Corey? What are what? the Republic? What's the what's the candidate for? Not what are they against that you're that you would support? Uh, well, I I'm a small business owner, so I should have expected that you were gonna. I should have anticipated that you were going to ask me and grill me like, okay, so what are your, your principles? No, I mean, we, we, there's a lot of things we don't get in our politicians. So what, 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 what do you have to have or what do you want? So I think a politician who is truly a small business friendly uh, politician who understands the plight uh, and the challenges of small businesses. And by small business, I don't mean, you know, blue chip uh, public companies. I mean, real small businesses. Yeah, not Amazon. So, you know, when, as a small business owner, I love my, my crew. Uh, I love, you know, I, I sacrifice literally for not literally, but like, uh, do self-sacrificial things, put them first at our own cost. But when LA County first and in California at large imposed this, uh, the, the minimum wage, we talked about this last time we, we hung out, Josh and Will, it was something that didn't align with basic math, right? I yeah. get the principle and what's underneath it. And, and we're in agreement where, but as a small business owner, I take, I take care of my, the people that are working that are on our team before I take care of myself, you know? So I, I already believe, but the, the math just wasn't there to support the aggressive curve on which they were raising minimum wage. And there were other factors at play that, made it really difficult for us to compete with larger companies. There were so many different factors that I just, I thought there was a lack of basic understanding of how small businesses work and how the math works and how profit and loss statement works. So that was one issue. I think religious freedom, you know, just listen to David French and his, his track record as, as an attorney, you know, protecting religious freedoms. If we're in common cause, if an organization is doing God's work is doing tikkun olam, is healing, you know, the problems of the world, but they don't happen to want to um, participate in, in gay marriages. There's other options for that, right? There are other options for, for folks who want to get married to go to a different church or go to a different flower shop or go to a different cake shop, right? But in the case of uh, a adoption organization, they're doing good work. They're working towards the same ends, but there's this thing upon which based on their biblical uh, foundation, they can't agree with you on this, this thing, this gay marriage. Don't, don't stop them from doing the good work that they're doing. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question directly, but those are a couple issues where yeah. I definitely align more on the traditionally conservative side, but I'll tell you what, if, in our district, if Garcia is the Republican candidate, I know for a fact that I don't agree with Christy Smith on, we, we interviewed her too. She's the yeah. Democratic, uh, leading Democratic candidate for US House here. I know for a fact that I don't agree with where she's arrived at issues that she'll be voting on, mm -hmm. uh, probably three quarters of them. But I love the process by which she arrives at those conclusions. I think there's a lot of integrity uh, there is goodwill uh, that she arrives at, and there's an inclusion of people like me. There, she she includes people that disagree with her 
in the conversation, in her process of how she arrives at her conclusions, right? So I'd rather vote for someone that we disagreed on particular uh, issues that she'll be voting on three quarters of the time. I'd rather vote for that person than on Mike Garcia, who voted to overturn the electoral college counts of Arizona and Pennsylvania, who has only showed up on OAN or Newsmax and Fox News. He's never taken a tough question. He, he ne can never write any, uh, a single paragraph or, or say anything on Twitter that doesn't absolutely demonize and vilify anybody with a D before their name, including President Biden. I, I just, that's- yeah. I, you want not, to be able to have a beer with somebody. You want to like the person and, and respect the person. It's not even that. They can be they can be an asshole, but if they're an asshole with integrity, <laughs> you know, like, all right. Is that possible? Right. Hmm. I don't know. There's some folks who end up being good people who have some sharp elbows, you know? Sure. I'm okay with that. I don't need to hang out with them. I don't need to be, be best pals with them. But on basic level integrity issues, if, if it's clear, and, and in Mike Garcia's case, if it's clear that his number one issue is what I was talking about before, is he's locked into this us versus them. And yeah. the us is defined as people who are absolutely 100% devoted to Donald J. Trump. That's it. And anybody outside of that circle, you're the enemy. And I'm going to spend my entire time in office uh, vilifying you. And, and owning you and dominating and winning this battle. I ain't into it. I don't care what you vote for. I don't care if three quarters of the things you vote for, you know, end up being what I would have voted for. It doesn't matter because we don't have the same ground. We don't have a common ground from which we can even have the conversation. So anyway, but I'm not the guest. <laughs> <laughs> Will and Josh are the guests. You know so. what I, can I, so I heard this phrase that I want to get you, you guys, um, Will and Josh to weigh in on. Love is not agreement. Disagreement is not hate. I agree. That was good. That'll preach. <laughs> I love. I feel so loved, Josh. Well, one of the things that I, I, I've talked about before is that I kind of grew up with a sense, and for whatever reason, in my relationships, that disagreement is disloyalty. And so when that, mm -hmm. when, when I, whenever someone would disagree with me, I felt like, man, I can't like this person. And it was like this, huh. I don't, it was this cultural thing where it's like, you know, they're dis, you know, they're, you know, dishonoring me or they're not, they don't care about me or, and then I married my wife, Ashley, who's amazing. And she really set me straight with the whole disagreement is disloyalty thing. Cause we disagree about quite a few things and she is uh, clearly loves me. And, um, I said that as a joke, but it's really true. But I do think that basic agreement, though, I would, I, I, the only caveat I would say is that basic agreement on something is the foundation to any conversation. If you can't come to a place where you agree about something, in other words, like the earth is round as opposed to flat, you know, that the sky is blue, that you know, that a coronavirus is a real thing that, you know, whether you think it was man-made or came from or God-made or mixture that whatever it is, that it's, if you can't come to a place about something, because disagreement is founded upon agreement. And that's the paradox. I don't know if that's a paradox, but that's kind of the counterintuitive uh, way though, that I think is so true until you can find common ground 
you can't build a conversation on anything because you're not you're never talking about the same thing. They're playing tennis, you're playing baseball. And there might be some similarities, but until you can come to some kind of agreement, um, you can't even disagree because there's nothing to disagree about because there's no there's no basic assumptions that you agree on. Anyway, that's just kind of my thoughts on it. What do you think, Will? Do you think it's um, not just that it's, is it possible? Because I think we probably all wouldn't be here if we weren't of the mind that you can disagree agreeably, but more that are there things- As long that, as you agree with me. <laughs> right, right, naturally. Uh, um, but I feel like there's a lot of corners of our, our society right now where disagreement is hate. Mm, yeah. That's how it's viewed. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah, so, so this, the answer to that, to that question did not become as clear to me until we we did a series on critical race theory and as i told one of my guests you know like at six months ago i had no idea what crt was you know like okay maybe i'll, I'll forfeit my black card you know like like i just didn't know what it was so um when we when we got to talking to the guests had some really great conversations both kind of like for and or against it um the 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 level of comments both on our youtube our facebook group etc um from people that are for and against it one really kind of showed us like who our listener base was and it's it's pretty pretty wide um, and then two you know w w one of the comments was we we interviewed james Lindsay, um who was against CRT and had a lot to say about it. And um, one of the comments on, on the YouTube thread was, you know, how come you didn't, you know, drill it into him, tell him he was lying and so on and so forth. And, and like, I, I responded back to this person was like that. That's not the intent of our show. Like our show isn't, isn't to necessarily, you know, point out all the wrong things that they said, because one, I'm, I'm uniquely unequipped to, to do that because like I guess I mentioned in an earlier show, I didn't even know it was six months ago. So who am I to be, you know, correcting somebody that's been studying this his whole life, you know? And like, so, so even though I, I may disagree with, with what he was saying foundationally, you know, it, it didn't necessarily mean that I had to treat him differently. As a matter of fact, I thought he was a really cordial and very nice individual and like i mentioned to some folks that after the interview like he stuck around for like 20 minutes and we were just just talking about life in general <laughs> like it wasn't it wasn't like you know it wasn't like okay i need to really correct you on this this and this like we were just talking as if we were, we were friends so i do think that we we have to you know just just be cognizant of that there's a really good book called uh, why we're polarized and and i always recommend it to a lot of people written by ezra klein and and he really kind of hits this point home i mean even though ezra klein is is um is left um yeah. progressive the book doesn't necessarily kind of take that that viewpoint and he really kind of hones in on something that i i, I know josh is sick and tired of me talking about something called like motive attribution asymmetry which which really defines like this in-group out-group type of pairing of like um they did this they did this research where they studied a bunch of democrats and republicans and studied Israelis and Palestinians and found that the the link uh, between the divisiveness of the two are almost identical that basically like Republicans and Democrats hate each other as much if not more than Israelis and Palestinians yeah and and a lot of that is is attributed to the fact that in your in-group you're you're basically 
sort of hard-coded, hardwired to believe that everything that you do is altruistic. It's for the good of mankind. And anything that challenges that, you know, should be struck down and is of the devil, basically. And your out group is thinking the exact same thing. So your out group is their in group, if that's not confusing. You know, so so yeah. so like if I'm a Democrat, I'm gonna think that all my policies are for the benefit of mankind and it's gonna make your life and my life better. And how dare you challenge me on that? And if you're a Republican, you're thinking the exact same thing. So so I think once you kind of understand like, you know, the 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 in-group out-group dynamics it really kind of shifts your perspective on how you interact and talk with people because it, 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 it gives you the sense of, I, I now know where you're coming from. I know that you didn't, you know, you weren't raised to want to destroy the world. You just, you just might not think that, you know, climate change is real and you want to fund big oil and stuff like that. Okay. Well, <laughs> that that's all for the benefit of the good as you see it, you know, on my end, like I believe in climate change. I think we should get rid of fossil fuels, you know, that doesn't mean that I want to like necessarily destroy the world. It's just, I, I have a different vision of how humans can, can thrive and prosper than you do, but we both want humans to thrive and prosper. It'd be interesting to read the Ezra Klein book and then read David French's uh, 2020 book, Divided We Fall mm. in conjunction and, and see how they compare and contrast, see if they arrived at some similar conclusions. But one of the many reasons why the series that you did on, on critical race theory was so great and, and it was, it's a great series. There was a, a fourth, it was like a bonus one, but you, you had a scholar, uh, you know, so a lot of folks enter into conversations about CRT uh, as sort of amateur scholars, never having read an actual academic paper about, about the, the theory. So it's great to get an actual academic. Uh, you had two other folks, um, one of whom, uh, the last, the last guest, I would say, his default posture tended to be maybe unfriendly toward uh, what he'd heard about critical race theory, but he was persuaded because he listened to the the last one that I that that you had on, because he actually listened to each guest and he learned. And he's not like a you know pom pom waving kind of CRT yay 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 thing, but he was persuaded, and he it sounded like he did learn a bit. One of your guests was kind of the opposite, uh, a default posture of being friendly to to this. Uh, to to you know came into it having already certain positions that aligned with uh, critical race theory and and you know to be fair to Lindsay I think that he's not I, I wouldn't describe him as anti CRT I would just say he's CRT skeptic like he's a healthy skeptic he comes in with healthy questions you could say he's unfriendly toward toward uh, the theory and but I don't know uh, I, I found him to to be edifying and challenging uh, in, a, in a healthy and, and civil way. And we welcome that. I think, I think with someone like that, there is some common ground to be found. It doesn't all have to be war. Where we're all killing each other. <laughs> so you guys are so, uh, I was saying before that you're so engaging, not just on your podcast, but on your social platforms. And I forget if I saw this post on your Twitter feed or on your Facebook page, which by the way, I really commend it any of our listeners who enjoy just thoughtful, uh, sometimes there are surveys and sometimes there are conversation starters. I saw a really thoughtful one the other day. Was this on Facebook or Twitter? The one about conservatives and metaphysical ideas? Facebook, think, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to pose it to you and I, I, I want to see what, what you fellows and, uh, and Jess, what you have to say. Uh, the post was, dear conservatives, but particularly Christian conservatives, 
how do you wrestle with legally enforcing metaphysical ideas? And then it goes on to describe that a little bit further. The crux of the abortion debate is fundamentally a metaphysical question. And most importantly, it is a metaph metaphysical question on which there is an exceptionally broad swath of disagreement. By criminalizing abortion, you are using the power of the state to enforce a philosophical position. How do you feel about this? And how do you feel about the general issue of metaphysical questions being questions settled by law? So I think that uh, one of the responses that I saw when I was going through those um, that I thought was really good is my, my, my boy in James, he's our friend, uh, Will and I's friend, James uh, Kane. He's an awesome dude. And, um, and he, one of the things he says that biologically, you know, the biological question of when life begins isn't really that much of a question because a kind of life begins at, at conception. You know, it's a life, it's, um, it's a separate entity, that kind of thing. Then the question of personhood, the question of, of uh, the, the Christian way to say that or the theological ensoulment. That's, a, that's, a, that's one of those million dollar words, ensoulment, when the soul is given to the body. So the question of the metaphysical part of this I think every single, so, so, okay, we have the metaphysical part. Yes, Christians think that we don't know when God gives the soul. None of us are God, all right? So we don't know when God gives the soul. And so uh, for me, I want to err on the side of protecting life as to erring on the side of destroying life, innocent life, okay? I know we're going to get, you can get into a whole thing. We had a whole uh, series on, on capital punishment. Um, but those are two separate things. To bring those two things together, I think it's so intellectually dishonest to talk about a baby versus a, a someone who has gone through the judicial process. Those aren't the same thing. I don't even like putting them in the same category. I understand. Anyway, we don't, we're not talking about capital punishment. <laughs> He's arguing against himself. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see. So for me, it's it's about erring on the side of the Christian to protect life. The metaphysical part of it, I don't know very many fundamental laws that don't have some kind of moral reasoning behind them. Or else why would we even make something illegal versus legal? Those terms to me, and I, those terms are soaked in moral reasoning. Uh, think about the arguments against abortion. Are they not metaphysical? Are they not something that is, is enabled to protect a certain ideology that we have a fundamental right to privacy, which then a fundamental right to whatever we want to do with our own bodies, the idea of fundamental rights. Those things are moral categories. They're moral categories. Animals mm -hmm. don't talk about rights. Humans talk about animal rights, but animals kill other animals or do whatever they want without ever thinking about rights, right? So what is it about it? So to me, I don't even know if I'm answering the question, but to me, there's a, there's a, since before saying, how are we imposing our, our, our metaphysical, you know, opinions on other people? Um, I would say any law, not murdering, um, any, any, any capital law, the ones that have to do with violence or theft or, or, or murder or anything like that, these are moral categories. And I don't, I don't, I don't get how you can separate um, a legal understanding or, or law from morality. I personally don't think it's possible. 
to do that. So everyone is, we're making moral decisions. That's what laws are about, moral decisions. Yeah. And they're about what a society and a culture deems as moral versus immoral. Interesting. Jess, I'm curious, uh, I'll pose the top part of that question again. How do you wrestle with legally enforcing metaphysical ideas? I well, well, to be honest with you, a lot of what Josh said resonated with me because one of the I've been reading this book um, called The Secular Creed that sort of takes apart the, the, the signs that people put in their front yard. I may have referred to it in another podcast um, and sort of compares and contrasts the ideas with biblical ideas. And one of the points she makes in there that that is similar to the point that Josh is making is that our whole framework for understanding rights comes from God, comes from a God who believes that each person has value and that each life is important. So yeah, I think that I, I don't I don't have a problem with it because metaphysical, it, it, moral, immoral, something you you can't see, it's still we can still ascertain in this particular instance with with abortion rights, whether or not you're you're basically just pitting one life against another, which is how I see it. Which life is more important to you? Which which choice is more important to you? I, I believe life begins at conception. I, having born two children, I can tell you, you know that as a, as a woman. Now, whether or not you want to carry that baby to term or not, there, there, are, there are options. And clearly with, I, clearly to me, the, the victory, to me, the victory of, of, the, of the marriage between women's rights and the pro-choice movement has been that we've we've big we've given women more choices by giving them birth control, by giving them more rights in the conversation around um, having sex with whoever they're having sex with, whether it's a partner or a marital partner or a casual partner. Um, we have more choices about how we care for those children, how we do adoption, how we um, have economic economic support systems around those women so that the choices can be better. Um, it doesn't mean that they're anywhere near to perfect. Um, and it doesn't mean that there isn't a cost to you personally and to your body to carry a child, especially a child you don't want to parent. But the, but if you believe that that is a life that you're carrying, then what part of you doesn't understand that you're making a choice for or against that life, putting your life either in front of it or, or not. So I think that's, that maybe that's more of a personal way to, to look at it, but I don't think pro-life is anti-choice. Um, I think it's making a choice for the child. Yeah, now, now that I'm hearing both of you talk, and I, I want to hear your answer to that, Will, I'm realizing that the when does life start, does life start at conception is maybe not a great, uh, the, the best way to tackle this question, what they're really asking. They're sort of shoehorning the, sub, the subject of abortion, uh, pro-life, pro-choice into what I think is a really great question, but uh, I'll defer to you, Will. So uh, how do you wrestle with legally enforcing metaphysical ideas? Yeah, I don't know if I can necessarily add anything as intelligent as what Jessica and Josh just said. So I I will just say my, I, have, I have issues with legislating metaphysics, metaphysical type of issues, because it's always going to be in conflict of um, our personal liberty. So, you know, you can, you can legislate based on a number of different metaphysical things that will always, you know, be at the detriment of another minority, i.e., you know, like 
Lovey, Virginia almost didn't get passed because like, I don't know, like there was a belief that black people you know, were, were somehow biblically inferior uh, to white people. Yeah. Um, the, you know, there's a whole slew of legislation that you could, you can kind of like anchor back to some sort of metaphysical belief um, that they try to legislate from. And, you know, it was at the detriment of the personal liberty of somebody else. So, you know, I mean, I've got my own beliefs about abortion. It's probably not necessarily relevant to this conversation, but, you know, like based on kind of the context of your question, I do think that we just have to be really careful when we, when we do that. Yeah. Yeah. My guess is that we have a couple of listeners that are screaming at their, uh, you know, their radio or however they're listening. And what about science? Nobody's mentioned science. Um, Cause I know a couple of folks really defer to what is the scientific community's consensus on this issue. So there's something to be said for that. E- even when there isn't 100% consensus, there is something to be said for, well, you know, is there scientific theory uh, or, or settled science about in this instance, when life starts? But the broader question for me is really more interesting. How do you wrestle with legally enforcing metaphysical ideas? And for me, I am persuaded by what you, uh, Josh and and Jessica said, uh, because I realize that I start with essentially what they're referring to as a metaphysical idea, which is, I believe in the authority of scripture. You know, scripture is, is God's word. That's my metaphysical idea. That's my belief. Right. So what does the Bible say about it? Uh, Now, I think that that is treacherous ground because the Bible can be cut up and you can take scalpels to half of a verse here and a half a verse there and back it all into a a decision that you've made before you even, you know, opened your Bible about it uh, to, to, to suit your preferences. So I think that's a really bad way to read your Bible. But I think if you're reading your Bible contextually, um, and and um, deferentially, then I think it, it has a lot to say on contemporary issues. Uh, and sometimes, frankly, it doesn't line up with <laughs> today's Republican Party. Can I can I say can I say one one thing? Um, if if you are wanting to kind of do a deeper dive on biblical scripture and abortion, um, this is just going to be a shameless plug. Um, we did a series in March called A March for Life, where we talked with Tremper Longman, who's like a biblical scholar and he does bible interpretations we we asked him that question the whole entire topic of the podcast was focused around abortion and and what does the bible say <laughs> and yeah, uh great. and it, it it challenged my thinking to be honest with you yeah. like <laughs> like like i mean when like i i came into the conversation thinking yeah you know uh life starts at conception and then he starts asking me a bunch of questions and i'm like well, i don't know like where life starts now like but at the end of it so you know i i would i would really uh you know recommend to your to your uh listeners uh, check that out yeah it was really really good i'll um since i i feel like i did way more talking on this episode i won't ask you the usually what's the last question which is do you have any questions for us um but i will ask you uh t- two more questions one is what do you hope to achieve with faithful politics great podcast great platform what do you hope to achieve with it I man, I I really hope that um, we we see it as a as a way to really open up conversation. And if not, I mean, we a lot of times we say we see it as a as a ministry. And what we mean by that is not that um, we are trying to convert every person that listens, because 
I know one thing that I think Will and I both agree on is that's not our job. Um, we're not in we're not in the job of uh, of changing people's hearts and making them believe something. We can't even do that anyway. But we do want to. We do. I think that for me, I want to change. I, I want to change the, or I want to act differently than what the people that would probably disagree with me the most think I would act. I want to. I I want to I, I be a better conversationalist than they think I will be. I want to be a better listener than they think I would be from their assumptions yeah. on on the color of my skin, the history, the the people that I've been around and the colleges I went to and all of that. And the fact that I vote for Trump in 2016. I, I want I want to be different than the way people, than the assumptions that would be made, a better listener, a better um, a better arguer and, and a more compassionate person. So that if nothing else, I'll let God do the work that he wants to do, but at least they have, at least they have some kind of counter example to the stereotypes. That's great. Will? Yeah. So the, the purpose of faithful politics is, you know, it's multifaceted, but I would probably say if I could sum it up in, in one, you know, easy to chew on and digest um, sound bite is I just I really want to just like normalize being different or having different opinions. Um, you know, like Josh and I come from two completely different backgrounds, you know, and we we get along. I mean, we're we're good friends. And, you know, it's okay that we disagree. So maybe normalize disagreement. That's probably a better sound bite. Uh, copyright trademark you can have that um but um but the but the the second thing is is i is i also want to i want to connect people with voices um and politics and you know different professions that that they normally can't connect to um and just just let them hear voices you know like real authentic voices from people that can kind of explain how things are going on. Like, so on my Facebook group, one of the things I really enjoy is I, I like posting who we have coming up in our series and say, Hey, do you guys have any questions for these people <laughs> and, and give them an opportunity. Like I have a whole list of questions that I'll write down before the interview and say, Hey, you know, we've got so-and-so from Georgia and they really want to ask you this, this, and this, you know, and then get back to them and say, Hey, you know, like, like you normally wouldn't have this venue to reach out to this person or that person or this one, you know, I've got this platform. I just want to put it to good use. Like I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to get rich or famous. That's, that's Josh's thing, you know, but, <laughs> but like, uh, uh, you know, I, I really want to just try to connect, you know, regular people and, and help educate people um, such as, you know, like when, when, when we talked to Olivia Troy the first time, um, I remember asking her a question about Mike Pence and uh, and she was like, yeah, Mike Pence is actually a pretty good guy. You know, like, uh, you know, the, the way the media kind of portrays him isn't necessarily, you know, who I think he is. And and she kind of gave a little personal story about the way that he kind of poured into her and, you know, and talking to some media folks, they're like, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, there are some bad media people out there, but all in all, journalists like really pound the pavement and really want to try to get the story to to people like you, you know, and, and, and I just think it's important that people understand, like when you peel back the curtain, it's not all like fake news and, you know, the deep state QAnon stuff, you know? So there you go. 
Good stuff. Good stuff. So how can we find each of you and how can we find more info about faithful politics? You want like the address? Sure. So I'll go with Josh's first. Um, Josh is uh, one, two, one, one. Um, I think it's Perry Avenue. I can't remember. <laughs> Just so kidding. No. Faithfulpoliticspodcast.com. Um <laughs> And, um, you know, he just you can, got it. He just, I just got, got it. it. It just registered. Like, that was a joke. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So faithful politics podcast, uh, dot com. Um, you catch us on Twitter. You know, I don't use my real name on Twitter, although my real name's Will Wright, but you can just type in faithful politics and you'll, you'll find us for the one and only. Awesome. That's awesome. This is a lot of fun and uh, I look forward to hanging out with you again. We'll, we'll come in and, uh, mess you guys up on faithful politics next time yes <laughs> yeah and as always if you like the show please hit that subscribe button leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcast most importantly tell a friend about us now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week thanks fellas thanks jess thanks bye, bye guys thank you thank you for joining us today if you appreciate what you've heard here please go to itunes or anywhere you get your podcasts Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>